Hello, hello, OCD family community, and happy St. Patrick's Day to all who observe. It's mid-March, and somehow, even when days can feel long at times, this year has just flown by. But Fridays are an anchoring point for me because I get together with you, family. So make yourself comfy, because today we're chatting with OCD warrior John Teller, and he's serving up an extra serving of hope. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. All right, y'all. If you're catching this episode close to publishing, you know we just had the time change. <laughs> Daylight savings time change is always a bit groggy and tiring. I mean, mostly because of the kids, for me, at least. And even if you're catching this episode at a later time, y'all know, when time change time, whether it's spring forward or fall back, it's tough. Now, when I was younger, growing up in the state of Indiana, we actually didn't change times. But we did adjust, especially, I remember different shows. I used to watch TGIF. Am I dating myself here? I probably am. But I used to watch TGIF. Full House, Family Matters, all those shows. After the time change, a 7 o'clock show, Eastern, would now be on 8 o'clock because it was either running on Eastern or Central Time. And we just lived in this strange space where the time didn't change at that time because now in Indiana, <laughs> it does change. It hasn't always been that way. And I did not experience time changes like that until actually I moved to California. I can remember. Back in the early days of cell phones, okay, yeah, it, this is totally my, we walked to school in the cold with no shoes, snow. <laughs> we used to get, and these weren't smartphones, we were lucky to have cell phones, period, but we would get these flip phones or these really basic archaic phones, which some of y'all or maybe all y'all's parents still have. Most, most parents, even my parents are on smartphones now, but it took a minute. <laughs> they were like 15 years into the next proliferation of cell phone technology before they went team smartphone. But you used to get these phones, they had these plans and you had minutes, right? And you would have night and weekend minutes where maybe you would get a bigger allotment of minutes and then you would have daytime minutes which were like nothing and cell phones made bank y'all on all of us at that time they did you could send texts but there were text fees i remember once i got a text from a friend i actually didn't really know him that well but at the time he was picking me up from the airport one of my trips back and forth between the west coast and the midwest visiting family going back to school going back to just life as i lived in la for so long and I didn't know how to check the text message, which seems really funny now. But it was like, I didn't know how to check the text message. 
So I didn't know that he was there and waiting for me. He ended up calling. But he was like, oh, I texted you. And I'm like, oh, I missed it. And I literally, I did not find that text message for like months. But text messages, they cost money at that time. And also, sending a text was no easy thing. It was obnoxious to send a text. You would have basically your keypad with the different letters on it. You'd have to hit that number once to get the first letter, twice to get the second letter, three times to get the third letter. And then T9 came about, which was like the most amazing thing since sliced bread at the time, because it was basically the first form of predictive texting that meant you didn't have to like press these numbers literally hundreds of times just to send a little sentence, right? So that was really cool. But I kind of sucked at doing the T9 as well. And if you didn't have a texting plan, you got charged per text. But it was a whole thing, right? So T9, we've come a long way. Now it's like, now we're just bragging, right? You got those like memes where they're like, hey, fill in the blank on this sentence with predictive text and share it in the comments. Ha ha ha. And it's like, oh, aren't we showing off to T9? We're like, watch, I can make a whole paragraph in like a second. <laughs> just hitting predictive text. And on an iPhone, I have an iPhone, uh, you get three options. Do you want this one, this one, this one? I mean, even now with email, I could be typing, great, let me know when you hear back or something. And it's like, do you want to say great? Let me know when you hear back. Apparently, I say that enough <laughs> that it's like, this is probably what you mean, right? So texting is pretty amazing now. But that was not even my point. My point was with the time change, nights and weekends when I went to grad school in California and I lived in L.A. for many, many years. My husband and I had our first baby there and just really bloomed as a grown-up, as an adult, as a professional in my career, all sorts of things when I lived in California. But for the time when the time change didn't happen here in Indiana, I remember I'd be like, oh, nights and weekends are three hours away. And so if I'm going to talk to you, I have to wait till it's like 9 p.m. my time. It's midnight here in the Midwest. And so it was like very challenging if it wasn't a weekend to be able to talk at a time that wasn't either midnight or later for my family or at the butt crack of dawn. Yes, that's a technical clinical term. Feel free to use it. So the time change was rough back in the day even. But now with kids, holy cow, holy cow. And it, it doesn't seem to matter whether it's fall back or spring forward. The kids, somehow their internal clocks are just screaming like, hey, it's 5 a.m. <laughs> Let me get up. When I never get up at this time usually, but I'm going to get up on this day because we have one less hour of sleep or everybody else is theoretically sleeping in and we laugh in the face of rest. Ha ha ha. We shall get up an hour early. Two hours early if you think about it. So yeah, I mean, why is that? I don't know, but I know. I know some parents out there are listening and going, oh, what I would give for my kids to sleep till 5 a.m. Or they're up every few hours with their crew. So I see you too. I get it. I stand in tribute with you because I've been there. I get it. And you know, my daughter, she has ADHD. And sometimes if she wakes up to turn over or whatever, as any of us can do throughout the middle of the night, you know, we stir a little bit, readjust, go back to sleep. And her brain just buzzes to life with all the things. And it used to be very obvious because she would wander around the house knocking on walls or doing whatever other loud things she could do at 2, 3 a.m. Oh, don't miss those days. 
But now she is more stealth, which I don't know that that's that much better for me because I don't always know if or when she has gotten up like that in the middle of the morning. And that is not ideal because then she's tired and ready for bed about the time preschool's going to start. And in those scenarios, I find she's kind of drifting off to sleep, even for two seconds, like in the car, especially. That's where I go, oh, those heavy eyes and, and I'm like, no. It's like a ticking time bomb because if she will fall asleep for even two seconds, she will not, will not, will not want to go to bed ever again, (laughs) ever. You're like, you're exaggerating. Um, well, a little bit, but we know parents, we know, right? When those kids take a nap, you're like, oh, I'm in for it tonight. And the nap can be two seconds or it can be two hours long. It does not matter. They're like, screw that. I'm not sleeping. So those make for exciting days. And I share that because when we think of OCD as well for our loved ones, spouses, or even us, when we have lived experience too, insomnia can certainly be a thing. It's hard to sleep when your brain is buzzing with spirals of distress. I used to have no problem falling asleep. That was never my deal, which I know is not everyone's story. So I get that I was lucky in the sense that I could fall to sleep. But my insomnia would certainly wake me up in the middle of the morning when my OCD was at its loudest. And I would wake up like at the four hour mark. It was uncanny, really, because it did not matter when I went to bed four hours later and boom, I was wide awake, wide awake. And I couldn't for the life of me get back to sleep. And they say they being this, you know, general peanut gallery out there, but probably, I don't know, doctors, researchers as well. They say, don't get on your phone at those kind of times or whatever, because it kind of just is going to wake up your brain more. And so I would sit there and try to not wake my brain up more. And I would just feel so wide awake. And then once you're awake, your brain is just going through all the things. Oh, how hard is today going to be? Because I can't get to sleep. What if I can't get back to sleep? Which I never would. I don't even know why I ask. Why do we ever ask, right? With OCD. But I'd be wide awake and OCD can just be restless and unrelenting, which is part of the distressing problem, right? And don't we know, don't we know that adding pure exhaustion, which can affect not only our mental health, but our physical health too, it's just like a premium gasoline on an OCD dumpster fire. And insomnia is one of many ways our thoughts can intrude upon our sleep. Some of y'all know because you're dealing with nightmares or night terrors with your loved ones or yourself. I mean, just because we're going to sleep, it doesn't mean our brains power down. And that is part of the torture, right? Sometimes it's like my brain won't stop. It just won't stop. And that's your brain for you. Your brain's being a brain, doing the brain things. But it can be torture. So if that's your deal right now for you or your loved ones, hey, I see you too. And you're not alone. And it is. It's so hard. But let me tell you, I I sleep well now. There's hope that's going to be a theme today, which I love. I'm here for that. But I sleep well now. And though my insomnia days in retrospect weren't that long ago, it's funny how quickly you can adjust to a new normal. It feels in many ways actually like it was light years ago that I struggled with insomnia, but it wasn't that long ago. So weeks like daylight savings time changes, though a bit bumpy, I recognize and celebrate that I have a new normal to be disrupted. And it's a little reminder that, hey, there is light and it's at the end of this tunnel, my tunnel. There's hope. And that, well, that is worth saying again, because there is hope, y'all. And that brings me to what we're going to be expanding upon today with our special guest, John Teller. Now, John and I connected last year after I published my OCPD episode with Dr. Anthony Pinto because John used to work with Dr. Pinto at Northwell. 
And John has an incredible story. And I think his journey, especially with how his symptoms started, it's just so relatable. Because what starts as a worry or worries that are common enough, we can all think about having similar ones, if not the exact same thoughts ping-ponging in our mind. It grew in strength and intensity in this incredibly absorbing, incredibly real way. And that's the thing, isn't it? That's the thing about OCD. Whether it's for the sufferer themselves or you as a support person, it can be so real that we can all fall into that trap. I should be concerned about this. I'm concerned for you about this. And for John, the trap or the traps led to multiple significant changes that took him in and out of higher levels of care and really took hope hostage. But as John will share himself, there's light at the end of this tunnel, family. Even when OCD feels like it's absolutely breaking you, your family, there's hope. So this is really a success story. One of triumph, one of continued battles, sure. And that's life, right? OCD or not, struggles will continue to evidence themselves in one form or another. But, but life, it doesn't have to be defined by the battles. And in time, we can find renewed strength because we battled. Life is about living, persevering, and experiencing. And not only has John fought the fight or fights to do just that, but he's also paying it forward by pouring himself into research and making an impact for all of us, for the better. You see, John is a first-year clinical psychology student getting his doctorate at Northern Illinois University. He grew up in the Empire State of New York, Long Island to be specific, and as you'll hear more about soon, he graduated from undergrad at the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. John's research interests are focused on the factors and mechanisms that impact the onset and maintenance of anxiety and OC spectrum disorders. He is particularly interested in examining how cognitive behavioral therapy can be enhanced to improve clinical treatment options for these disorders. And additionally, he's passionate about increasing access to mental health care, mental health advocacy, and deconstructing the stigma around mental illness. So not only is John's story a tale of how he battled and conquered OCD in his life, but it's also a story about how he said, and you know what, OCD? I'm going to be a researcher that continues to take you down for all of our fam here with loved ones in anguish from this monstrous disorder. So yeah, John's pretty great, but don't just take it from me, fam. Grab a seat and hear him tell more because there is light at the end of the tunnel. Also, I want to provide a brief trigger warning. We will talk broadly about suicidal ideation in this episode and differentiate it between the importance of understanding suicidal ideation and the difference between suicidal ideation and harm OCD. As always, please use your discretion in listening further. Welcome back, everybody, to the OCD Family Podcast. Today, I am talking with John Teller. So you are currently a doctoral student, and you are committing yourself to this field of research to support mental health. Correct. Excellent. So you're here, and thank you for the future that you are creating so that you can also add to the wealth of knowledge, understanding treatment, empathy, all of that. But beyond that, John, I know that you have a very personal story with OCD. And so you're really here to talk with us about your journey 
your story, which is such a gift, as we've said so many times before here on the podcast, to know that we're not alone is so important. So in starting, I'm kind of curious, first of all, John, and I realize it may have not been recognized as OCD at the time, but in hindsight, what do you think is one of your earliest memories of having OCD that you can think back and go, oh yeah, that was OCD showing up even then? Sure. So I think I was going into my freshman year of college and finishing up high school, getting ready for this big transition. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had recently broken up with a girlfriend and I just remember starting to have all of these thoughts about my future, what my future would hold, what would I be doing? And I remember these were normal thoughts to have, but I couldn't stop thinking about them yeah. every single day, hours a day. What will I be doing in my future? How many children did I want to have? How much money do I need to make in order to support a family? And eventually these thoughts became debilitating. Mm -hmm. I started to become very anxious, started to feel depressed. So right before I was beginning college, I started seeing a psychologist for the very first time. And I remember sitting in the psychologist's office mm -hmm. on the chair and the psychologist looked at me and said, yeah, well, you have OCD. And I looked at him and I said, well, doesn't everyone have OCD? So I really didn't understand the magnitude and the extent of what I was suffering with. Yeah. But I think going into my freshman year of college was when I really started to see the OCD manifest. Okay. And I'm impressed that the psychologist did know it was OCD because how many years ago would have that been for you? Well, so I graduated from high school in 2011. So about like over 11 years ago. Okay. And the field certainly has come a long way in the past 11 years. And so I am encouraged that even 11 years ago, your psychologist was able to recognize that, especially when we're looking at the presentation starting and growing, brewing, if you will, on a mm -hmm. mental compulsion level. And certainly there's probably things that you're doing in a physical way, researching income brackets, all that and whatnot. But it really sounds like you were starting with a hamster wheel of the what if, what if, and then what, and all of that. And so going into college was really when you started encountering OCD manifests and more in, in ways that you were more aware of. Prior to that, and prior to even going to the psychologist, can you tell me, was your family supportive of you going into therapy or what was your family's perspective per se on mental health? Sure. So I think my family didn't really understand what I was dealing with, but let alone I, I myself didn't really understand what it was I was dealing with either. Again, the term OCD is used so loosely in society yeah. that my parents were very supportive of me seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist as well, but I don't think they really understood the extent of what it was I was dealing with, how badly I was suffering. And I don't blame them. They're not at fault for that. I think we were learning together. And years later, which we will get into shortly, is when my parents really started to understand the severity of my illness. 
-hmm. But going into college, they were supportive. They were happy to help me seek treatment, but did not really understand anything past that. Okay. They really saw me suffering. And at the end of the day, my parents would do anything in the world for me, my brother and sister. So they just wanted to see me be happy and healthy. But the extent of their understanding of what it was, what really is OCD, I think they, they weren't quite sure about that. Right. But, right. but they were definitely very, very supportive of me receiving treatment. And again, just wanted to see me happy and healthy, especially as I was going into my freshman year of college. Eventually, later on, things took a turn for the worse. And they then started to really understand how badly I was suffering. But again, going into my freshman year of college, they were very, very supportive and were willing to really do whatever it takes for me to feel good. Okay, good. So they see you off to college. Were you going to college in a different town from where you lived or grew up? Yes, I was actually going to school in Pennsylvania at the time. Okay. My family were originally from Long Island, New York. Yeah, yeah. So they were living they were living on Long Island at the time. And I should mention that in addition to seeing a psychologist before starting my freshman year of college, I also began seeing a psychiatrist and was put on an SSRI. And fortunately, I remember that the medicine started working really quickly because by the time my parents dropped me off and were unpacking me in my freshman dorm room, I was definitely a lot less anxious and felt like my thoughts had settled down a bit. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard of SSRIs. I didn't know what they were. I did not know what they were used for, but I was feeling pretty good. Yeah. At the time, my parents dropped me off. Great. And also the psychologist that you saw, did uh, he or she start with ERP, with exposure and response prevention with you, or how was your OCD treated? Sure. So I was not receiving ERP at the time. I think I was receiving, if I remember correctly, just broader cognitive behavioral therapy, thought challenging. And it's funny you ask that because... It really wasn't until much later on when I heard of ERP and started receiving ERP, but I had gone through several psychologists before receiving ERP. Who knew you were coming in presenting with OCD. Yeah. Yes. So I think that, yeah, that's a really important distinction because as impressive as it is 11 years ago with sometimes there can be really obvious OCD symptoms that therapists miss. And I will include myself in that. I've treated a lot of generalized anxiety disorder cases over the course of my career that looking back now, knowing what I know about OCD, I'm like, that was actually an OCD case, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't know until you know, right? And so I think it's interesting because that psychologist was able to identify it, but they weren't able to treat it with, at the time, really the gold standard and still a gold standard today, exposure and response prevention therapy. And then going in, not even having to have to fish for a diagnosis, like having that, hi, I'm coming in to see you and I have OCD. Like they know you're presenting them with that diagnosis and still ERP wasn't really happening. I'm going to guess too that these were reputable, very, very 
good psychologists, but they didn't know. Yes, absolutely. And in hindsight, right, it's it's remarkable that I wasn't receiving that gold standard treatment and they were reputable psychologists. And I felt as if I was hopping from psychologist to psychologist, from psychiatrist to psychiatrist, going on and off SSRIs because of the different side effects that they had. And ultimately, I felt like the treatment I was receiving was really keeping me in this rut. Yeah. Instead of helping me break this vicious cycle. Yes, yes. And I think that's a really important point to emphasize because whether you've listened to this podcast or whether you've looked at resources through IOCDF, that's the International OCD Foundation, or NOCD, on YouTube, you can get a lot of really great material from both of those foundations. Talk therapy gets a very negative rap. But the reason is, think about, you know, confronting thoughts, right? You're like you were talking about, we would look at thoughts, whether it's thought stopping or thought distortions or whatnot. And it's not that there isn't value in being able to explore that. But within the OCD brain, are we then at a clinical level just facilitating a higher level compulsion that somebody is coming in and paying mm -hmm. us to do? And compulsions, it's not, it's not fair to just label it as a compulsion because we need to, and I think therapists or family members sometimes, you're compulsing, no, I'm not. Um, or, or ourselves, right, can be quick to judge and be like, that is a compulsion. But we also need to be able to zoom out and look at the function of it. Is that functioning as a compulsion? Because some things function normally whether it's hand washing or praying or different things like that, like you can do that in a functional way. And you can also have an issue where that becomes part of your compulsions within an OCD cycle. And so when we're going into talk therapy, it's not that talk therapy is the enemy per se. But when mm -hmm. we're talking about OCD, that is often playing into the rumination, the mental scanning, even the efforts to reframe can sometimes morph into a big reassurance session. And it might feel really good at the time when you're in session, just in the similar way that sometimes compulsions can bring that relief. And then you leave and you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've screwed on all the things, right? And so that is part of why we like to distinguish that. And you're really speaking to an experience where Instead of this getting better, it kept rocking the boat and going up yeah. in intensity. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. So you went to college, and I'm guessing you got a new psychiatrist, a new psychologist. You're in a new state, and you get portability. You can't just practice across states unless you're licensed and have the ability to facilitate that treatment in another state. So you go to college. You're on an SSRI. Your And I'm just curious, do you happen to have any health OCD or is that part of any of the history? No, okay. no OCD. I just, I just wondered because when you were talking about side effects, certainly there can be yeah. some of that metabolizing and how it fits with our body chemistry or neurochemistry. Uh -huh. And then sometimes if there's health OCD, it's also like, but I'm feeling this feeling. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, so it can, it can play in there sometimes. But yeah, so you go to college, you're feeling some quieting down, which is honestly what we want out of an SSRI. It's not going to solve the problem, but it can turn down the noise. 
and the noise was debilitating and the noise was loud. So you go to college, you're unpacking, feeling a little more able to function, really. And mm-hmm. unpacking the dorm, you, you got new treatment providers. Okay. Tell us about that transition into college. Sure. So like you mentioned, started freshman year, feeling pretty bull, right? And most, almost my entire freshman year, I was okay. Yeah. I, what happened was I would start feeling better on the SSRI, mm-hmm. would see side effects, and then I would take myself off of the SSRI. So as I was starting to feel better, I said, oh, I don't need this medicine anymore. And I would take myself off of the medicine. And then the intrusions would creep back up. And then I would go back on the medicine and the same cycle over and over and over. Uh So freshman year was okay. And when I came home for summer between my freshman and sophomore year, that's really when my OCD took a severe turn for the worse. And I realized I needed much more help than I was receiving. So I really want to highlight that point that you just made about the SSRIs, because I think it's a really common experience. Whether we're treating OCD, anxiety, depression, anything, where we're on an SSRI. Ideally, if it's a good fit with your body chemistry and how you're metabolizing the medication, and I'll preface this, I am not a doctor, please talk to your doctor about anything really, truly medical and side effects of medications. But what I will say from my training and understanding is that it will bring down the noise, the intensity. And sometimes people live with anxiety or depression and it feels like it's been their entire life as long as they can remember. And so having a medication be able to bring that down and go, oh, like I feel like I'm fixed, I feel better. That's a really great feeling. But taking a pill every day or taking it before bed whenever you usually doctors will recommend an SSRI either in the morning or at evening, And based on your body, one tends to work better for some people than the other. There's no right or wrong, though. And what's interesting is a lot of people, when they start to feel better, they're like, well, great. Now I don't have to continue to be on a pill, right? Uh, I don't really love the fact that I have to get prescriptions filled and, and take a pill, especially if I'm young and I feel healthy. And so, yeah, I can go off the pill. And so a lot of times if we go off the pill, and it's not to say always, we can see some resurgence in some of that symptomology because the pill was working. And that's why we're feeling so great. But the motivation is different. When you're feeling tortured, there's high levels of motivation to figure out something to turn down that noise. When you're like, life is seemingly normal. It's great. It's got highs and lows, but it's like normal of a better word in terms of the intensity. And I visualize like sound waves, right? So like if it's really high, that's uncomfortable. If it's way too low, that's uncomfortable and and not helpful. But we want to kind of see it in a range. Hey, it's in this range. I feel good. I feel better. And people go off their medication, which I always recommend doing with a doctor's help to wean off medication because SSRIs can kick you in the crotch if you you go off it on your own in a not safe way. And they all understand the tapering and the way to do it safely. And so in that process of going off and on and off and on, that makes a lot of sense about how you were feeling. Like it's like you push, I'm thinking of kids' toys because I have kiddos, where you push kind of like a one bar down and it goes, and the other side Mm -hmm. goes up and then you're like, no, I'll push this side down, right? Mm -hmm. You know, plus if you're fully getting off the medication and then going back on, 
means you're re-going through the side effects. You're re-going through that adjustment period biologically that your body needs to start to process and metabolize that medication. So that is a lot, and I'm really glad that you highlighted that. So between freshman and sophomore year, this is where it really amped up. And it is really common for OCD symptoms to really start presenting in that age range. But also, it's very intensifying for a lot of people because if you think about it, they've gone from really being school age to whether you're working or in new school kind of age, but more of an independent adult. The amount of responsibility on your shoulders has really exponentially grown. And so you were in that period, you had finished your freshman year. Were you majoring in psychology at the time? No, I was still trying to figure out what it was I wanted to study. So I'm on summer break. I'm working a job at Dunkin' Donuts where I worked in high school. And I just remember my head was spinning a million miles per hour, so many intrusive thoughts. And later that day, I was checked into the emergency room. And that was my first short-term hospital stay, which was the first of five short-term hospitalizations before I was finally admitted to residential treatment. So as you can imagine, my parents were starting to see the severity of my illness. And Mm -hmm. while I was on the inpatient unit at the hospital, all they were really doing was managing my medicine. I was not receiving any behavioral treatment, but they just wanted to ensure that I wasn't a harm to myself or harm to others. So again, back on an SSRI, after about five, six days of being in the hospital, I was discharged and I ended up going back to college my sophomore year to the same university. But every other weekend I was traveling back to New York because I was just not feeling well. So I was seeking treatment and just going back and forth, back and forth. I ended up dropping some classes. I remember my dad was in touch with my professors. So after sophomore year is again, another short-term hospitalization. And I realized I needed to be close to home. I did not go back to college in Pennsylvania my junior year, but ended up taking classes at community college while seeking treatment but another short-term hospitalization, another one, another one. And ultimately my last short-term hospitalization, I remember my mom came home from work and she was in her room and her door was shut. And I knocked on her door and said, mom, I'm leaving. And she said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to check myself into the hospital. It was a severe snowstorm. I put my jacket on sneakers, not even snow boots, and walked about six and a half, seven miles to the emergency room. And I remember the receptionist, when I walked into the emergency room, the receptionist looked at me and said, can we help you? And I said to her, I I don't feel well. And she said, can you elaborate? And I said, I just don't feel well mentally. Mm -hmm. And I said, I've been diagnosed with OCD. I want to check myself into the hospital. So eventually, That was my fifth stay in a a short-term hospital. And I remember late that night, like 11, 30, 12, both my parents came to the hospital and they were hysterically crying. And that is, that was really the turning point of when they realized I needed a lot more help than I was receiving. And 
perhaps we should be looking into residential treatment options. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty powerful. And you just think of all those different risk factors of it's probably freezing cold with that much snow. Your shoes were probably soaking wet. You're probably frozen. And really just the dire need to be able to get help. So it's such a powerful image of just fighting for that, that desperation for something to ease the pain, right? Yeah. And so I think that's really powerful. In terms of treatment, and so going into the hospital, were you able to be supported in the hospital? I know you hadn't heard of necessarily ERP yet, but were you able to be supported in the hospital in working on the OCD? Or was it more of a, we're going to drug you up, we'll do some group therapy sessions, and we'll kind of share about things we can do to stay safe. And then once you're in the range, where we can go, yeah, we can send you back out where you discharged. What was that like for you? Sure. So I think my first three or four short-term hospitalizations, I was put on medicine. The psychiatrists were managing the medicine. I was attending group therapy, like you mentioned, but really no behavioral component to this. My last short-term hospitalization, I remember my parents came to a meeting with my team and the psychiatrist looked at my parents and had recommended that I apply for residential treatment. And as you know, there are not many residential treatment centers in the country mm -hmm. that treat obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. So through this psychiatrist, we had learned about a residential treatment center in Boston. And I had filled out an application, got doctor's notes from the previous psychiatrists and psychologists I had seen, and was then put on a wait list that was about three to four months. Yeah. So up until residential treatment, I had heard about ERP a bit in my last stay, the last psychologist I was seeing, but was not necessarily receiving a heavy dose of it. Mm-hmm. So eventually I remember it was a Tuesday in April 2014, I believe. And I was at my grandmother's house attending community college, being a psychologist and a psychiatrist outpatient. And I received a call from the treatment center in Boston. And they had said that one of their patients had been unexpectedly discharged. Can you be in Boston at the treatment center on Thursday, two days later? I remember I called my parents, we packed up my bags and the next day we drove to Boston together, the three of us. And that was the beginning of a four month stay in residential treatment. Okay. And so, and that would have been at McLean? Correct. Okay. And so McLean, we've talked about McLean down in Texas. They have a couple different programs around the country and Boston is certainly one of their main hub programs. But again... We look at this recognition that you needed to travel across state lines to even be able to access that level of care. It's not an easy to access sort of thing. And there can be a lot of challenges and barriers to getting into treatment because when we're at the point of going, okay, a higher level of care would be helpful. And not only would be helpful, is needed. Okay. 
it already feels and OCD loves to pour some of this on top too because it's just part of its profile. It feels so urgent. It feels so dire, right? Like I need this. I'm not going to survive. I'm not going to make it if I if I can't get this. And then you're right. It is often and still is a wait list of at least a couple of months that it can be. It sounds like you were high enough in the queue, thankfully, that when they did have an abrupt opening, you were able to do it. But yeah, I mean, how many people can just drop everything and go? Oh, if your life's on the line, you're going to do it. And your life was on the line. But at the same time, these are definitely some challenges and barriers. The idea of somebody needs residential treatment and lives a state or two away, let alone maybe even more, it can be really, really hard. Like, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. I can't pay for it. I can't get there. I, you know, there's just a number of different challenges. So you got the call that you were going to be coming down to McLean and your family was able, your parents were able to drive you. At the time, I know you said you have a brother and sister. Where do you fall in that lineup? Sure. I'm a middle child. I have a brother that's about a year and I have older and a sister that's two years younger. Okay. And so what was that like in terms of the sibling dynamic? Because understandably, when one sibling or one family member, whether the kids or not, uh, is having such a debilitating struggle and excruciating battle with an illness, it takes a lot of time. It can take up a lot of mental space and energy, not just for the sufferer, but the family members going, I don't know what is going on, right? Like, I don't know how to help. And so how did that affect the dynamic between you and your siblings? Was it adding some distress to them as well? Or were they pretty supportive? What was that like? Sure. So I should definitely mention that my brother was a huge source of my reassurance. Yeah. I would go to my brother for everything, reassurance about everything. Mm -hmm. So, and he didn't really understand what I was struggling with. So I'd ask him a question and he'd respond and I'd feel better for a few minutes. Right. Mm -hmm. And then this cycle would continue. So they were both in college continuing their education and were very supportive, but still not entirely sure what it was I was experiencing. But I remember very quickly after beginning residential treatment, my brother was no longer a source of reassurance. My therapist had spoke to my brother and had let him know anytime Jonathan sends you a text message, just don't answer. And you slowly start to see the accommodation for my family diminish as I start residential treatment. So he was in a way a big part of my OCD, mm -hmm. but just doing it out of love, wanting me to feel better, not knowing that he was really fueling the fire. Oh, family, we get that, don't we? I mean, that's this community, Justin. <laughs> we get that. We get it because you want to love your loved ones. And you love them fiercely. And like you were even saying with mom and dad earlier, like they would do anything for you. I, I, I know that cognitively, but becoming a parent too has been so transformational in which case it is hard to consider your own heartbeat before your child's, right? But it is also so important. And so really having some illumination on the fact that there were some real allies with OCD in the house out of the 
best of intentions, I just want Jonathan to feel ease from this pain. I just, you know, what's the big deal of it? Yeah, no. And it's so easy to get caught up in. We know that as sufferers and certainly the family members learn it in time. So you went to McLean and you were at the Boston campus and everything started to shift, huh? We started to have brother reducing accommodation, which was it still, was it hard to feel a closeness with him having that change in the relationship or did you find you guys found new ways to connect no i think it it was difficult and i would like to mention that this is a time where all of my friends are continuing their education and i am behind closed doors watching everyone else's life continue as mine just stopped completely and yeah i on one hand, I was okay with that because I was struggling and suffering so much that I really just wanted relief. And I said to myself, if I can get better and I can beat OCD, I can continue with my life. And if I graduate college a few years later, so be it. So it, it was difficult on that end, but I was also very, very motivated. And I remember in the beginning of residential treatment, I went through this honeymoon phase. Mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of ERP. And within the first two weeks, I started to see my symptoms reduce significantly. And then probably about three weeks in, I hit rock, rock bottom. And I remember telling my tour at McLean, I'm going home. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I'll live life with OCD. I don't want to be here. And my team spoke with my parents and my family, and it was a big shift to this tough love where my, I remember my mom said to me, you're not welcome home. You're not, you're not welcome home. You, you need to be where you are. You need to get healthy. And we are doing this because we love you, but coming home is not the answer. So about three weeks in to treatment at McLean, I was moved from residential treatment to the inpatient lockdown unit, which was on the same campus, but I was a a risk. I was, I was a risk for myself and I spent five days there. And I remember on the fifth day, my team from McLean came over to the hospital I was staying at and they looked at me and they said, what do you want to do? And. It took a lot, but I, I looked at them and I said, I, I want to do this. I want to come back. I, I want to do this. If, if, if not now, when, if not here, where? So I left that hospital, went back to the residential treatment center and continued my work. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. And there's, there are a lot of different things that I would love to unpack a little bit with you if you're okay with it. So certainly on the podcast, we've talked about when you're a parent to a child with OCD, especially when they're an adult child, which at this point, it's such a it's such an awkward phase. I feel like at least for me, I'll say from my experience when you're in college, you're like you still feel kind of like a kid, but you're an adult and you're doing adulting things. But you also feel you are still a kid in a lot of ways. Right. Just learning to Mm -hmm. stand and do things on your own and it's pretty wobbly and and now we add all of the distress with the mental health disorder right so it's already very challenging 
But we've talked about the topic of how can we reduce accommodation? What are, what does it feel like the stakes are or the ramifications of giving some of these tough love, harder boundaries? As you said before, your parents would do anything for you, including not welcoming you home. Mm-hmm. And that, as painful as I'm sure it was to feel, I'm sure, rejected in that moment of like, I can't come home. What? You know, at the same time, we see now mom got it and mom said it because she loved you so much. Because she wanted to protect and comfort you, but she knew she couldn't and that this was not going to help you. And so the struggle is so real for family members, certainly, knowing how to embrace this. And it looks different case by case, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got to do, each person has their own experience of OCD. Each family has their own experience of how that impacts them. There are certain common themes, absolutely, accommodation being one of them where we can find a lot of, uh, a lot of things that can trip up the family and the sufferer. At the same time, it, it just it's a really powerful example of what can happen. Also, you know, throughout the kind of growing intensity of the story, I know that you've referenced the intensity of your intrusive thoughts. Would you be willing, and you don't have to if you don't want to, but would you be willing to share some of the themes or content that you were struggling with and how that would impact you in the moment? Sure. So I think I remember these thoughts. How many children did I want to have? So a lot tied to the future. And if I couldn't figure out how many children I wanted to have, I would start Googling on average, how many children do people have in their family? And from that, I would start worrying about finances. How much money did I need to support that many children? And then there were sexual intrusive thoughts that I had. Who am I going to marry? When am I going to get married? Will I be good enough for my partner? So as you know, OCD likes to really latch on to whatever it is at the time that's going to be the most intrusive. Mm -hmm. So as I started to feel better about the symptoms related to my future and how many children I wanted to have, then they shifted to the sexual intrusions. So it was always just shifting back and forth, back and forth. And I remember my therapist at McLean explaining to me that we're not treating the specific content, right? Right. Like the content does not necessarily matter because if we treat the symptom, another symptom will pop up. And that was, it took a lot for me to really understand what that meant. But in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense. And I started to let go of what it was or what the theme was and start to really just focus on the skills and becoming comfortable with being uncomfortable and just living in this world that's gray. Things are not black and white and life is uncertain. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's really important to emphasize because often as OCD is growing in intensity and there can be certainly be things that are still distressing. Like you said, the whole thing about how many kids am I going to have? That is distressing. It would it would preoccupy the mental real estate in your mind a hundred percent more if possible, right? 
And at the same time, as distressing as that is, for the person or for the family member or for that psychologist that you're seeing or for yourself, certainly going, well, if I have an intrusive thought about what if I assault somebody or what if I, what if I were to touch a child, what if, what if something that I identify myself as isn't actually who I am? It feels like, man, those stakes are high. The kid thing, that was still distressing. But now it feels like the stakes are high. And so to hear the feedback, like content doesn't really matter, can really throw people for a loop, especially when you're in the height of some of that intensity, because that makes no sense to the person. It's almost like, oh, what I give to just be thinking about the kids again, even though that was so hard and, and so distressing. And so, but you're absolutely right, because the content let me ask you this. How do you feel about cursy words? Are you okay if I drop a... Yes. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm proud of myself for editing. Sometimes I just fling into that and then I <laughs> ask for forgiveness. But the content is bullshit. None <clears throat> of it, none of it is who you are. And that's why it's so distressing because the fact that I could think this or, or visualize this or imagine this or not remember if could I have done it and I'm just not remembering all those different flavors of it, it feels so real. And so to say content isn't the thing feels like, how could, how could that even be? But it's true because at the end of the day, it's not who you are. If it was, it would be in sync with your values then. You'd be like, sure. that's right. That's who I am. I am Mr. I'm not going to have my shit together. So I won't even know how many kids I won't plan. I won't do any of that. I Maybe mm -hmm. I am this person. Uh, maybe I'm going to text somebody or sexual intrusive thoughts. Can, it can manifest in a lot of different ways. But what I would say is, yeah, it's not, that's not the experience. Instead, it's what we call ego dystonic. It's not in sync, but it's absolutely everything you might hate in the world or what you don't want to be. And the fact that you could have these thoughts, the thought that you could have this image, the thought that you could hear sounds or whatever, it can look so many different ways. It's so distressing because that is not in sync. That is not egocentric with who I am. It's egodystonic. And so I think that's a really, really good point. And so you were going through the honeymoon phase. And it got to the point where you were transferred to inpatient because of just the continuing spiral, which was initially going down. And then it popped, right? Yep. OCD loves. It's like, oh, yeah, you, you get in some strength. Watch for this. Mm -hmm. And so it, it got really intense. In terms of moving over to inpatient, and again, to the degree that you would or do not want to discuss this, that's totally fine. But were you, I'm curious, were you feeling suicidal at the time in terms of part of that shift moving over there? Sure. I think there was definitely suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. I did not have a plan, but I think it was really my cry for help. Yeah. And it was similar to when I was back on Long Island and was admitted to the hospital time after time after it was really just a cry for help i need help i need help i can't do this mm -hmm. i don't know what that help looks like but here i was receiving some of the best treatment in the world and i still felt 
like I couldn't do it and I needed more help. So I, I did not have a plan. It was really a cry for help, but it was enough for the residential treatment center at McLean to transfer me over just to make sure I really was safe. And at that level, when I, when one is so distressed, so anxious, so depressed, you can imagine it's nearly impossible to even engage in treatment. So mm-hmm. I think part of the work I was doing when I was transferred over was just trying to get back to this baseline so I can go back to the residential center and begin my ERP work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is interesting in terms of the setup for residential. And I think this is different with youth, certainly. Like if you're a minor in residential treatment and your parent is or caregiver legal guardian is consenting for you, or maybe it's even ordered by a court for you to be in residential treatment. You don't just up and leave. But when you are an adult going into a treatment program, you have the freedom to leave. You have the freedom to say, because you are guiding your own health care. And unless you have a power of attorney that is saying, I actually make all of the legal medical decisions and I say they can't go, you are going to have that choice to say, I can't do it. You had called your mom, you said, we're home at the very least and said, I can't do it. I'm going to come back to what was quote unquote safe space. And it's not to say Mm -hmm. it isn't actually safe there, but it was your Oz here, you know, like I'm going to go I got to go back there because that's the only place where this can even potentially be better, which we know from being home before wasn't because we ended up in the hospital quite a bit over there. It was still very, very distressing. And so in terms of residential treatment, sometimes if you're a flight risk and like you said, it's hard to engage in treatment, but it's hard to engage in the world. So if we think of a bright person like you going out in that level of distress, you're not going to be able to think straight or clearly, and then it can become a safety issue. So it's not always because of suicidal or homicidal ideation that someone might be hospitalized. It might just be, I'm afraid that they're not going to know how to get where they're going. We have a history of you walking six and a half miles, seven miles in the snow. Is he going to be safe? And so for his safety, then he was transferred over into the lockdown unit on the same campus. And so... That's a really important point because people aren't always going into the hospital for that reason. Also, you happen to be at an OCD facility. And so it's different there in terms of the level of understanding and differentiating, for example, harm OCD themes with suicidal or homicidal ideation. Certainly in areas that are not as well versed and probably some of the hospitals where you were going in Long Island area, even a lot of people go in with these very distressing harm OCD thoughts, and they can be identified as a suicide risk, which is some of their most intrusive fears, or homicide risk. And they're sitting in group therapy where they're doing nothing but talking about trying to commit Mm -hmm. suicide. And you can feel the imposter syndrome, right? Like you can feel the imposter syndrome in treatment, certainly like, is this not going to work for me? Am I the one person? Is my brain that broke? But also, oh my gosh, like, am am I right about this? Am I thinking what all these people are thinking? They're giving me such great examples of my worst fears. It can have that really toxic feeding the monster effect if we don't understand that that's OCD. 
with an exposure that can be helpful if we utilize that in a way where we can practice response prevention. But often, like we said, the hospitals, unless you're at one of those specialized facilities like McLean, aren't going to have that education and awareness. So you were inpatient. You decided to go back. So you stepped back down mm -hmm. into residential care. How did it go when you got back there? It was really difficult. I remember I was engaged with treatment. I was doing my exposures, but it was very tough. I remember I was, I was almost just going through the motions, mm -hmm. but I said to myself, at least I'm doing it. It's better than not doing it. And maybe if I keep doing it, it will get easier. So I kept at it. And after about four months, my team at McLean felt that I had the necessary skills to be thrust back into the real world. And I was fed up with a fantastic outpatient clinician on Long Island. Mm -hmm. And I was discharged in early May of 2014. And I immediately continued my work with the outpatient clinician. And I started to work as a camp counselor at a local summer camp on Long Island. And I just remember my team at McLean and the outpatient clinician I was seeing, they both stressed to me the importance of having a routine, having a schedule, getting up every day, taking a shower, eating breakfast, going to work. And although it was unpleasant, it was tough. My thoughts were still there. They were still distressing. I remember each day I was able to look back and say, hey, I made it through another day and I just kept going. In the fall of 2014, I took classes at community college again. And it was really the fall of 2014 when I started to see a big shift. Mm -hmm. I started to feel less anxious. Mm -hmm. My thoughts were not as intrusive. And I remember I said to myself, oh, I'm probably just getting lucky or something, but they'll come back tomorrow. But I remember one day was okay. The next day was okay. And the trend was continuing. The trend was continuing. And still to this day, I, I don't know exactly what happened, what exactly caused that shift. But I think that's the beauty of it, that I kept at it. I continued to put the effort and put the work in and the thoughts started to slowly lose power. So I continued seeing my outpatient clinician and after probably six months of seeing him, he looked at me and said, you don't need me anymore. You have the skills necessary to go ahead go live your life. And whatever you do have intrusive thoughts, you have the toolkit to conquer them, to face them. And you're, you're ready. You got this. Amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah, you know, timing is kind of fickle, right? Like we sometimes, and pain can be fickle. You know, you can ask a medical doctor and they can tell you about, I got a pain here. Well, actually, I think the source is over here. It's referred pain, right? Like it can move and it doesn't make sense. Why is this coming now and this is coming later? And I tend to like to think about gardening when it comes to this, right? Like we can plant seeds and Maybe they'll come up and grow beautifully and we'll be like, yay, I'm so good at this. I'm going to grow more things, right? Or we look across the street and we're like, hey, they've got a beautiful garden. If they can do it, I should be able to do it, right? 
And we can plant mm-hmm. seeds. We can mix perfect soil. We can look at long-range forecasts and try to fine-tune all those details. And maybe it's all there. All the right stuff is there. I'm doing all the right stuff. And we still don't see a harvest, right? We still don't see what we work so hard to see. This is real, real for me, Jonathan, just to be honest, because I planted so many tomato plants last year that usually grow like wildfire. (laughs) And I got like two, maybe two, maybe two that survived. A couple more, to be fair, ripened, but animals got to them before I did. But I mean, I... I get it. Putting that much work, that much effort, creating an environment still doesn't guarantee this is when the crop is going to grow. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But why does it pop up later? Yeah, I don't know. What I do know, though, is it wouldn't have popped up at all had you not been putting in the work. And so you prepared for this, whether it was this planting season, last planting season, when you were just graduated from high school. Even though you went through all of that, it has purpose and meaning because it got you to where you were. And why why all the things aligned for it to bloom mm-hmm. then? Why not? You've put that work in and now you get to enjoy that work. Now, what I will say is, and we've talked with other folks, I certainly have worked with clients where they're stepping down in treatment. And in a lot of ways, it can parallel the discussion we had about medication in the beginning. I'm feeling better. I'm stepping down. Or there can even be that built-in fear. If I step down, it will get worse. I got to say here, I'm not going to survive if I'm not in this more restricted, very supportive where everybody understands and eat, breathe, sleep, ERP. It is going to be pretty scary. So being thrust back out into the world, even though it ended up being wildly successful, from my point of view at least, what was that like in terms of, and I'm getting the kind of like baby giraffe just kind of rebirth here and trying to stand on its own, let alone function. How did that feel going back to New York? Some, even your house, if you went back to your parents' house, picking up pieces and not falling into some of those same old routines, what was that like for you? Sure. So in... It was November of 2014. I remember speaking with my therapist and it was always a goal of mine to graduate from a four-year university. So my goal was to transfer back at a community college. And I had heard of the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia from some of my brother's friends who had applied. Mm-hmm. And I remember my parents were very nervous for me to transfer to school in Virginia Again, I was vulnerable, fresh off treatment. What would this look like? And my outpatient clinician explained to them, he has to go and live his life. Yeah. Right. If it doesn't work out, at least he gave it a shot. So I was very, very nervous, not sure what to expect. But in January of 2015, I was accepted to the University of Richmond. I was so surprised that I was accepted. I remember I called admissions thanking them for giving me another chance. And I had wrote a bit about my story in my personal statement. And the admissions counselor had said to me that she had never heard of such a story. And they were really excited to have me join the community. Mm-hmm. So January of 2015, my parents dropped me off on campus. I didn't know a single other student at the University of Richmond. And I remember I looked at them and I said, this is my time. I'm going to go crush it. And I immediately found a clinical psychologist, faculty member on campus. 
express my interest in getting involved in clinical psychology research. I stayed that first summer to do a project with Dr. Lauren House, who studies adult ADHD. Mm-hmm. And I made a great group of friends and things really just were falling into place. And I should mention that although I wasn't experiencing the same OCD symptoms as I had when I was in residential treatment and prior to that, I began to see my OCD manifest in other ways. Mm-hmm. Perfectionism, for example. I, if I didn't get an A, that was not okay. Mm-hmm. Only A's, perhaps studying too much, not having enough school social balance. So I did start to see the OCD manifest in other ways, but it wasn't debilitating. It wasn't impairing. It wasn't interfering with my work. So not to say I had, it's not that I didn't pay any attention to it, but I was able to function. I was happy. I was healthy. was enjoying life. Yeah. So. And so you're making some really interesting distinctions in terms of feeling like, yes, maybe it was time consuming where it shared that with some prior symptomology. It was really like you were, for lack of a better term, I don't feel like this is the best, but it was in line, right? And so what that makes me think of, it really makes me think of, it was more egocentric getting the A's, right? And while OCD can certainly bring the distress, especially if you feel like you have something to prove, and maybe I'm just injecting my own kind of bias, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but sure. But if you feel like I'm going to prove to everybody I'm coming back so freaking strong because I felt left behind and I really didn't care at the time because I was in survival mode, but now I'm functioning and I'm going to function the shit out of this. I am going mm. to annihilate any obstacle in my way. And it can really swing. So while you can have that motivation and certainly buy-in to want to prove it to yourself, to everyone else, where at that point, if you don't get the A, you're going to feel a lot of distress. That also can overlap quite a bit with what we were even talking about. You worked for Dr. Pinto with OCPD, where that that really feels more egocentric for people. Like, I want, I want the A. Not only mm-hmm. like, and, and I am willing, I get distressed that it took me 10 hours to get this done, but I am willing to do that versus feeling obligated and imprisoned to do it within an OCD framework. And so I wonder, perfectionism is one of those tricky things, can certainly be both. Right. But it sounds like there was a little flavor of egocentric. Like it was who you wanted. You were okay with it. You're like, I'm okay with being awesome. And I get it. I'm going to pursue that. I wish it took a little less time. But then again, it's worth it to annihilate this. Right. And so it's just kind of my initial reaction. I could be completely wrong. But just in hearing that, I'm wondering if there were some flavors of OCPD. And I want to also say that with a little hesitancy, because just because you have some criteria that could match doesn't mean it's at a disordered level. So I'm not wanting to diagnose by any means. And this I say at the top of the show, but it never hurts to reemphasize this is not a diagnostic talk, y'all. So let's not be self-diagnosing ourselves. 
or our family members, if it rings something that feels familiar for you, pursue that with your own mental health professionals and your doctors. But yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense to OCD sneaky like that and it can morph and change. And like you said, it really seems to latch on to our values. And so mm-hmm. that is that is very, very, very good point. Before we started recording today, John, we talked a little bit. If you have heard of ICBT, that's Inference-Based Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for any of the fam that is new with us. And so in terms of ICBT, I know you said that you're not super familiar with it, but I also think ICBT offers a lot of hope. It's not dismissing ERP at all because ERP is the gold standard here in the U.S. It is definitely the main focus of the International OCD Foundation, which is such a terrific resource that I'm referring to on the regular. And ICBT also, and it's who's to say it isn't a gold standard, it has 30 some odd years of research at least. And as I've been learning about it, has a lot of hope and a lot of really valuable tools. And it's similar but different. Let me distinguish that than ERP. Completely different tools, but tools, tools to fight OCD. And so I love that there are more options available. I love that that really there are treatments that are becoming more mainstream because like you said, 11 years ago, let's see, 2011 isn't even 11 years ago. I got to update my math with the new year. It's 12 years ago at this point, 12 years ago. Like it's fascinating and exciting to see where awareness of OCD and treatment of OCD is going. So when you were in college and you finished college, you were really picking up on, okay, I am going to be on this clinical psychology track or a major in psychology. Do you think that just going through treatment and having that experience solidified that you wanted to be a part of making an impact here? Sure. Absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that I conducted research on adult ADHD as an undergrad. I also spent the summer of 2016 working at the Yale OCD clinic. Mm -hmm. And that was my first experience with OCD research. Okay. And I really enjoyed that. I graduated from the University of Richmond in 2017, and I spent some time working in a lab at Stony Brook University, getting ready to apply for graduate school. And for whatever reason, I thought maybe the grass was greener. Maybe I should seek out other opportunities outside of psychology before committing myself to six years of graduate school. So I took a pivot from the psychology world into corporate America, Mm -hmm. where I worked as a management consultant for nearly three years. Mm. But I remember right when COVID hit, Mm -hmm. I woke up one morning and I looked in the mirror and said to myself, this is not what I want to do in my life. I would hate to look back when I'm 45 and 50 and say to myself, why did I not pursue what it is that I'm passionate about? And that is when about April of 2020, when I contacted Dr. Pinto seeking research opportunities. And for the next two plus years, 
I continued working my job as a consultant and also conducted research with Dr. Pinto and was preparing my applications for graduate school. Wow, that's awesome. And so, as we've said a couple of times, Dr. Pinto is a friend of this OCD family community. He's part of the fam. And in terms of, I would imagine, Northwell, is it close to where your parents live? Were you in that area? Yeah, it was, uh, it was on Long Island. Yeah. I was actually living in Washington, D.C. at the time. Mm -hmm. But given that we were in a pandemic, Dr. Pinto and I would meet through Zoom. And once a month, once every month and a half, I would come back to New York and we would meet together in person. I love that. You know what I think is really interesting, too, for our listening family here. There are so few resources when it comes to especially OCPD, which is one of Dr. Pinto's specialties, and realizing that you don't necessarily have to be an enrolled student under his clinical doctorate program to be able to participate in the research. And we've talked about how much more research is needed, both for OCD and OCPD. And so I love that you were able to connect with him and just go, hey, can we work collaboratively on some of this? So what is some of the research that you guys worked on together? Sure. So I think it's important for me to mention that I had the opportunity to sit in on group ERP mm -hmm. as an observer. Mm -hmm. So I attended weekly meetings where the team would discuss intakes and patient cases. So that was a great experience. So I had that clinical experience in addition to the research we were doing, we were looking at what score on the POPs, the Pathological Obsessive Compulsive Personality Scale, which Dr. Pinto created, at what score would an individual's OCPD potentially begin to interfere with their OCD? So that was some really interesting research that we conducted in collaboration with his colleague at Columbia University, and we presented that research at the OCD conference this past summer. In Denver. Yes, in Denver. I actually did not attend, but was able to put the poster together and record a video through Zoom. Great. But Dr. Pinto was at the conference and in due time, we'll be writing that work up. As you can imagine, Dr. Pinto is very busy and everyone's very busy. So it was really great experience and awesome project to work on because I am very interested in research that has important clinical implications. Mm -hmm. And this was a perfect example of that type of project. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So you were able to really get some experience under your belt, which is highly valued <laughs> when you're applying to graduate schools because they're like, oh, yeah, we value this too. And you're already started. We're, we're here for it. And so in terms of going into your PhD program, are you still in year one or are you through year one? I'm in my second semester, my first year. Okay. So how have you found the management of your OCD to be going over the course of really this new transition, zooming in even more within the OCD world and research? How has your symptom management been? Sure. Things have been great so far. I moved from New York to the Midwest, so a very big move. Did not know anyone in the program, but have met some really nice people, have made some really great friends thus far. And I'm really enjoying the classes. Yeah. Really enjoy the mentor, Kevin, who I've been working with. And I think the program at NIU does a really nice job of slowly integrating you 
into the work, into the research. So that's been great. And just really looking forward to everything that lies ahead. Obviously, it's a very long haul. So taking it day by day, semester by semester. But I think at the end of the day, I'm just super, super grateful and fortunate for this opportunity to be enrolled in such an incredible program, to be involved in such a great field, and eventually have the opportunity to help people get their lives back. Yeah. Yeah. And with that focus on really wanting to have impact with clinical implications, it'll be exciting to see where you go with that, with your dissert and your career, really. But you've already started that, and that's exciting as well. Can I ask you, and again, I will, disclaimer, don't feel like you have to talk about anything in particular. But can I ask you, I know at the very beginning of this journey, you talked about coming out of a breakup and certainly ROCD and the dynamics of relationship OCD can impact, especially if you're feeling the weight of like, are we going to have kids and how many kids in the future and all the things that were really intrusive and snowballing earlier on. And so I would imagine through the height of the anxiety, it was probably hard to find time to connect and date and do things like that. But have you been able to find yourself feeling able to embrace uncertainty with dating, which is a big old crap bowl of uncertainty? And how has that been for you? Sure. So my time at Richmond, I was dating a girl for nearly a year and a half, which was great. And most recently, I had a girlfriend for a year plus and he recently broke up. But I think those intrusive thoughts I had around relationships and dating previously have settled down a lot. And I think I am able to embrace the uncertainty and I know that life's not certain and I know life's not black and white and there's a lot of gray and there are times where it gets really difficult but I really try to keep myself in check. And I have a tattoo on my wrist and the tattoo reads just thoughts. And I think those words are really powerful because at the end of the day, these intrusive thoughts and this noise in my head, they're really just thoughts, that's all they are. Mm -hmm. And we as individuals are the ones that give them power, but they're just thoughts. So when times get tough, it's very easy for me to look down at my wrist and remind myself that they're just thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. That is really powerful. And I I apologize too. I'm like, well, how's dating? You're like, it just broke up, Nicole. <laughs> Sorry about that. But what I will say is like when you go into dating though, is that something where you lead within the first couple of dates? I want you to know that I struggle with OCD and though I may be at a subclinical level here, here are some of the things that can be helpful or not. Or is this something that you don't necessarily lead with? I do get that question sometimes of like, it's such a part of who I am. And though I'm not ashamed, especially at this point, because I've worked so hard to get here to feel like I can just live my life. At the same time, I feel like it's the elephant in the room that I need to talk about. And how and when do you bring that up in a new relationship? So have you found that to be tricky at all? Or do you have any thoughts that you could share with anybody listening that is walking that tightrope of feeling like I don't know how and when to share about this? Sure. So I think most importantly, 
for anyone that's listening that might be struggling with this topic, don't put the pressure on yourself. Okay. Amen. I like to take the approach that if I'm feeling comfortable and I'm reading the room, that feels like the right time that I'll open up. But I really like to gauge the situation. Mm-hmm. I will say having a tattoo on my wrist is always an icebreaker because <laughs> I'll be sitting at the table. What's your tattoo? And there's oftentimes I might not be in the mood to speak about it, but I chose to get my tattoo where it is. And that's because it has a lot of meaning to me mm-hmm. and I want it in a place where I can see that. So even if there are times where I might not be ready to share my story and my journey with OCD, someone might ask me, oh, what's your tattoo about? And I'll open up and I'll speak about it. But I, I really like to gauge the situation, read the room and just feel it out. I mm-hmm. try not to put pressure on myself. And sometimes you can open up too early, right? And that might be uncomfortable for someone else. So I think you really have to just yeah. use your judgment. And But like you mentioned, it's, a, it's, it's who I am. I'm not ashamed of it. I don't shy away from it. If I can go back and change anything, I would change nothing. I think my journey with OCD has really shaped who I am as an individual. And although I don't think that one needs to have suffered from mental illness in order to be a good clinician, Mm -hmm. I think it has really taught me the importance of empathy and understanding. And I think I'll really be able to take that with me as I begin my career in the field. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm completely biased because I have a as well and I'm a clinician, but but I agree with that. But also, I mean, there's amazing clinicians and researchers out there without lived experience doing great work as well. But it does have a little special place, I think, in hearts like yours and mine, where we get to say, wow, I get to not only conquer this in my own life, but bring hope to others. And that feels pretty powerful and very, very sacred, really, in a way. Something that's interesting for me, as I've been learning more about ICBT, for example, I and I love both models, so I'm not prejudicial for one over the other. I love that there's choices, mostly. I just love that there's choices. But in terms of something that would strike me even in my own personal journey with OCD would be if intrusive thoughts are just intrusive thoughts and everybody gets them and sometimes they stick for some people. And now as we understand and get into ERP treatment more, we see how our compulsions were reinforcing that. Why is it that it targets what we value? And what we value varies from person to person, right? Like, why does it hit me here? Because it is. And I'm going to react more strongly to the things that are very vulnerable and so important to me that I want to protect myself. I want to protect others from me or whatever the case is, right? And so it's always been kind of a weird thing that I've tried to not overthink too much because I am a very skilled overthinker. I've had lots of practice overthinking for most of my life, but it was in my mind the scatter plot that didn't make sense, right? And for those that aren't sure what a scatter plot is, or it's been a minute since you've maybe plotted things in school, it's just to say that there wasn't any kind of relationship that we could really see that one is causing the other. And yet, when you talk within the community, People say, yeah, no, it really tends to target what we value. So how, how does that work? Something that's been really refreshing as I've been learning ICBT, and I am still a student, which I hope to always be a student of ERP as well, because I want to continue learning, period, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. And I can always improve. But something that's been really interesting about learning about ICBT is it approaches OCD from a completely different direction. And it gives a reason. It gives a mechanism for why it is targeting seemingly these things that we value, even though they're random. And just if you think about it, their random hits are hitting the polls of like 100% there. Uh, almost. 99%. Let's keep it a little ambiguous there. But I really have liked learning about ICBT for that reason, because there's a mechanism of inferential confusion that says we're getting these thoughts for a reason. We have these vulnerable self-themes where I fear, what if, what if I could be somebody that could drop the ball here and it has an impact on people I care about? What if I could be neglectful? What if I have the family and I don't have the right number of kids and I don't have enough money and everything goes to shit? And so it really comes out of these vulnerable self-themes that we can have within our OCD brain this inferential confusion. And it's something that they have skills for and they can measure just the way we can measure for OCD in other ways and and OCPD with the pop scale. And it's just been really interesting because as I've learned more about that and where is my inferential confusion higher and how did I reason myself into this space, it's really taking it from an upstream cognitive approach where we're not even necessarily getting to exposures. And so I've found that really interesting, but I've also found ERP super effective for me in my life. Uh, And so it's been an exciting thing to be able to embrace all of the research options. And it's also really exciting to hear about the different thoughts and brainstorming about future research that is going to be happening. Like with yourself, where you've gotten involved in research and you're like going to, I don't know if you've been brainstorming, I'm sure you have been brainstorming dessert ideas and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's an exciting time to be in the field. And my guess is 11, 12 years from now, just the way we've been looking back and going, oh my gosh, things were so different. We're going to look back and we're going to go, wow, things were so different. And I am so excited for the direction that this field is taking. And so I thank you really for not just sharing your own experience, because I think it really helps people not feel alone. And it normalizes that we all have stuff on paper. You're fantastic, but not just on paper. You're fantastic in person. And that includes your person that has OCD, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay. And, you know, like, I love that you get to live your life. And I bet there was a time where you were like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to. Because it was so imprisoning. One last thought that I have about just some of the stigma and expectations Ooh. for men uh, that they're not supposed to be struggling emotionally with different issues, which isn't true. It's not true. Uh, we all struggle with different things, but this pressure to feel like I need to protect others. I need to have all my business together if I'm going to be taken seriously, if I'm going to catch up or keep up with my peers, all of that. And so I'm just curious because as hard as it's been, I think it's been tricky in this day and age to talk about gender because it is a very, very raw topic for a lot of people in today's world. And not to say that it hasn't been before, but there's been room for some advocacy around that. But also just honoring you are a man you identify as a he and and what has that been like in terms of 
feeling able to be like, I'm not okay, or I wasn't okay for a time or a season versus what's the expectation of where you should quote unquote be? Sure. So I think you may have heard the saying, it's okay to not be okay. And I think that's very true. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of stigma around mental illness, but within and between genders, I am actually a part of a campaign that is run through McLean called Deconstructing the Stigma. And that the goal is to reduce the stigma around mental illness. And I think, especially in the field that we're in, where we're trying to help others get their lives back and help others feel better, we feel as if we have to have it all figured out ourselves because if we don't have it figured out ourselves, how can we help others? And that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Everyone struggles. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to not have the answer. We need to put our best foot forward. And that's all anyone can really ask. And there should be no stigma around mental illness or men with mental illness. And everyone should be able to express themselves and should to an extent be emotionally vulnerable. And if you need help, you should seek that treatment. You should seek out treatment and it's, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so a couple different things that just kind of popped up for me based on that as, as we kind of draw it to a close. There's an old adage, an old saying, it's like the blind leading the blind, right? And it's usually used in a pejorative way where, yeah, this person doesn't know and they're like, you're just following whatever they're saying <laughs> or whatnot. But in many ways, and if we want to think about it through the veil of uncertainty, we're all blind leading blind, right? Mm -hmm. We all have stuff that where we may feel like, okay, I got some functional concrete certainty in this area or that. Like none of us have a crystal ball. None of us know what's going to happen next. We can have good informed problem solving, but we're all in a way blind leading the blind. And what's nice about that, where people are going to go, well, then what good is that going to do? It's going to do a whole lot of good because we're not alone. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not just wandering in the wilderness on our own. We're together. And we share more in common than one might recognize when we look at it and realize it's not a bad thing to share some of our humanity, really. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, in fact, we're together and we're leading each other in different ways. How nice, how beautiful. So I really, I really like that. And so you were mentioning when you were at McLean in the residential, that it was hard to engage with treatment, Hmm. let alone probably go out and seek different things out in that moment while you were there to support you because you were feeling so distressed. You were feeling so anxious. You were feeling so depressed. And particularly with depression, but anxiety too, all of these can be so isolating, so hard. So the idea even of seeking treatment, the idea of risking the vulnerability to say, but what if the things I'm thinking are really bad and much worse than anything you ever thought? And I could just be locked up for it or, you know, people are going to think I'm insane for being able to say this, like that can be a barrier in getting into treatment too. So I love the messaging of get help and that's okay. That's nothing wrong with that. And there's this misconception, I think, that when you leave residential treatment, you're going to be 100% better. By no means was I 100% better. By no means was I 75% better. I had the tools 
necessary to go out and continue work with an outpatient clinician. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I didn't realize the importance of that follow-up care, but it's equally, if not more important than the the residential treatment itself. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, that's such a good point. I mean, it is living life living life. So that's where you're going to be triggered. That's where you're going to run into new themes. That's where you're going Mm -hmm. to, I've joked with the family community about, you know, a lot of things when we learn them, like basic things, or might be a little complex or require some coordination, but fairly basic. We compare it to like riding a bike. Once you do it, you can do it, right? Yeah. But there's also an inverse. You know, if we look at riding a bike in terms of I've got a new skill, riding a bike can also be I can get in the obsessive compulsive loop. Riding the bike can be like I'm spiraling and I didn't even realize it again because it was so sneaky and subtle as it is. Yes. And and there I am riding the bike just like always. And then sometimes I have that awareness of like, wait a minute, riding that damn bike. Hey, OK, yeah. which is really, really lovely when you can just back up out of it. Uh You know, versus feeling tortured for who knows how long about it. But it is, it's really interesting how easy it is to fall into riding a bike again with some of those old spirals. So that outpatient care is really vital. And also, you know, there are going to be times where you're going to need more support or less. But if you're in the place where you're so depressed or feeling so isolated by your anxiety that it's hard to imagine getting out of bed let alone setting up an appointment and billing insurance or any of those things. Do you have any kind of tips that you would give people that are in that space? Having been in a space where you're like, I couldn't see the forest through the trees myself. Sure. I think taking baby steps, you're not going to feel 100% better after one day, after two days, after a week, but set small goals right? That goal might be to get out of bed and take a shower. Yeah. As simple as that. And if you can set that goal and achieve that goal, then you've just worked towards something. Mm-hmm. Making a meal for yourself, right? At least you're getting out of bed and you're making a meal and you're eating. So I think setting very, very small goals and trying to work towards those goals. And also try your best to surround yourself with a supportive and loving network whether that's your family, whether that's your friends, whatever that might look like. Mm -hmm. People that you can be open and honest with and that they could be a really big resource for you if you're not able to make that phone call to a doctor's office yourself, perhaps that other individual can help you. So I think both of those are very important. And most importantly, for anyone that's listening, that is struggling with OCD or has a loved one that's struggling with OCD, know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you have to just keep working hard. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, know that there's a huge OCD community behind you, supporting you, cheering you on Mm -hmm. and holding your hand each step of the way. I love that. I love that. And, you know, sometimes that cheering looks like checking in in a text. Hey, how are you doing? Sometimes that cheering looks like, you know, a like or a heart on social media. Sometimes that cheering is somebody devoting their life to research to be able to provide more 
support with clinical implications like yourself, John. So you you are cheering on in such a big way and we are super grateful for it. And I am just, I'm so happy for you to have the freedom to choose what you want to do with your life now, right? Like it, it feels like there is no choice and it's imprisoning when you're dealing with the lies of OCD. And yet you get to reclaim your life. And it doesn't mean every day is perfect. It doesn't mean every day is even happy. It doesn't mean you'll never get distressed again. But one of the silver linings that I emphasize quite a bit here on the podcast is while I would wish OCD on no one, a silver lining, and I get it, it's controversial when you say OCD is beneficial in any way. But what I do like to point out for my clients and what I like to point out for this community is that. When you have OCD and you've been able to engage in the treatment, and that doesn't mean things won't trip you up every now and then. It doesn't mean you're done with the ERP. You don't have to <laughs> lean into uncertainty anymore. It'll pop up in a new way somewhere else. You get plenty of opportunities to practice. But what a gift in hindsight. And once you're at that place in your treatment or in your maintenance of it, to be able to go, you know what? I don't have to know. I'd really like to know the answer to this, but at the same time, I don't have to know, and I'm okay living with that. I mean, if you look at so so much that is happening in this day and age, and the access, the reach people have with social media to literally post something before they're even thinking about it, or before they've really vetted it, you know, anything, and it gets out there, like, it's hard to deal Marketing companies and PR firms make so much off of this offer of if I just do this, maybe it'll help. And it's not to say that those of us in maintenance mode don't get tripped up every now and then by that. But what freedom versus where we were to be able to go, eh, maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. And I think I'm going to try it, but I got to choose that I'm going to try it. And I also can deal with the uncertainty. Not only deal, but I'm going to live my life. I'm living out here. That is a gift. And so you are now living and you're doing so much with it. And we appreciate so much that you were willing to come and share your story with our OCD family community. You're part of the fam now, John. Thank you. And I wanted to thank you for having me on this podcast and Thank you very much for everything you've been doing for the OCD community. It's really important work and will help to push our field forward. Thank you. You know, it's interesting. I, in many ways, feel like just this woman, right, that's here. Mm -hmm. But this has been such a generous and supportive field. I've found, you know, just like you with Dr. Pinto, where if we reach out and we're like, hey, I'm interested in this and I want to learn more. People have been so willing to be like, you got it. Again, it's that cheering on. And so I relish the opportunity to be cheering people on as well. And I thank you for that. And this would be nothing without the fam. So without you, without our other listeners, this wouldn't be anything. This would just be me talking to myself, which is sometimes what happens, but I don't generally record it. So thank you so much for coming on. And I really look forward to see the waves you make in this field, John. It's going to be exciting and we are rooting for you as well. Thank you so much, Nicole. Yeah. Thank you for that. 
Oh, family, was I right or was I right? I mean, John has such a powerful story to share. And what I wrote down while I was getting ready to share the story with all of you was his words, this quote, if I could go back and change anything, I would change nothing. Nothing, family. That's powerful. That's so powerful. Because so often, y'all, don't we look at our loved ones, they're suffering our own, if we're lucky enough to be in that camp too, and go, why me? Why us? This is so hard. And it is hard. You're not joking about that. You may have even listened to different parts of John's story today and thought, this poor guy, I feel for him. I relate to him. I feel pain for him as a mother, as a sister, as a brother, as a father, as a son, as a daughter, as a partner, as a spouse. And yet, through it all, through the higher highs and the crippling lows, John not only sees and shares and reminds us that there is light, light, y'all, at the end of the tunnel, but that if he could change his story, he wouldn't because it's led him here. It's who he is. And I'm sure, sure, y'all agree he's a warrior. He's been through battle. And not only did he survive, but now he's doing the work to continue to slay OCD for him and for you and for me and for us. And his perspective, his experience, his determination, not only in battle, but in research is going to make such incredible waves. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. And if we look hard enough, we'll see John there. He's holding a torch. There is hope, family. There's hope. So for today's intrusive thought segment, this is the application segment of my show for any of the newer fam with us. Here's my challenge to you. Let's dream a bit. We're all well aware of the isolating, limiting futures OCD would paint for our OCD warriors. And when we can't even see a flicker of light at the end of the tunnel, it's even harder to dream that it's truly there. I've been there. John's been there. My guess is you or your loved ones, they've been there. Or maybe you're there right now too. But hey, our life, this precious life, it's about living. So even if you can't see it for now, I want to challenge you to dream about something you want to do, a way you want to live, really live, or something you want to experience, a goal along the way. Because as all-consuming as OCD can be, there's more to life than the distressing picture it paints. So let's commit to living and not letting OCD define what that means for us. For some, that may look like being able to leave the house. For others, that may look like finishing up a degree or dating. Or it may be the idea of having a child or having more children even because OCD can convince you or strike fear to your very core. But what if you hurt them? What if you're negligent and fail them? What if you didn't plan properly and now everyone suffers all because of you? OCD uses our own very convincing logic against us within our obsessional spirals. It's part of how it locks us into this undeniably intrusive story. But it's not the only story out there. So let's dream, shall we? Because maybe, just maybe, there's that light at the end of the tunnel. And we will be okay. Maybe, just maybe, we'll go on to become renowned researchers, like the future Dr. Jonathan Teller here. Or maybe, just maybe, we'll cradle our child after a time change. And our biggest problem is this spring forward crap. How's that look for a dream? Hmm. So what's your dream, family? What's your loved one's dream? Because you're not alone. And today is a new day to live, yes. 
to live. So let's live, y'all. Because do you see that? Do you see the light ahead? It's there. And we've got this. So let's keep dreaming and living together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like fighting OCD with an awesome PhD. That's right, I went there. And you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.